Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you for joining us this week because Marianne's guest is Dr. Crystal Heath, and you're going to love this interview. Dr. Heath is that all-too-rare person, a veterinarian who cares deeply about avoiding harm to all animals. Why is this so rare? Of all of the insane things that we deal with every day about why people do what they do to animals, one of the most inexplicable to me has always been but veterinarians, like why are none of them, well, not right. none of them, but why are so few of them vegan? Why? That's a lot of what I get into with Dr. Heath, aka Crystal. I don't know what I should call her by her. Whenever it's a doctor, I feel like I should use their honorific. I did that recently. I interviewed a doctor for our hen house. It was Dr. Judy Bragman. It hasn't aired yet. And I, and I avoided the question and she goes, what should I call you? And I was like, oh, you could call me Jasmine. I assume you want me to call you Dr. Brangman. And she said, Dr. Judy is fine. And I was like, oh, it makes me think of Dr. Ruth. Well, anyway, so I'm really excited about hearing your conversation with Dr. Crystal. She does explain. I mean, not satisfactorily, because who can explain anything in this crazy world satisfactorily? But she does go into the reasons of how it is that the veterinarian profession is so far behind on on paying attention to to animals and their welfare. It's just bizarre. So on the flock bonus segment, I continue my conversation with Dr. Heath. As always, if you're a flock member, you'll get the link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast episode goes up, where you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at our henhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a member of the flock, please join us for our flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we chit chat about activism and how to deal with this world that we live in that is very upside down. And we also speak to some inspiring guests. So if you're a member of the flock, check out the flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with me if you'd like to discuss your activism. One thing I do want to mention, and you'll hear it in our announcements, is that if you are planning on joining the flock, this is a great time to do it because between now and the end of the year, all (laughs) all donations made between now and December 31st are being tripled dollar for dollar up up to $20,000. No, I wasn't done. Up if we to, don't get the 20000 we don't get anything. Right. Up to $20,000 if we make it to $20,000. Yeah, actually, I said it wrong, too. Because if we don't make it to $20,000, like if we get $19,000 from you guys, then we keep the $19,000. We're not giving it back. But we don't get the matching money. Right. It's so dire. You always leave that part out. I'm not leaving it out. Dire. I wasn't done. But anyway, so thank you. If you believe in independent vegan media and you would like to see us continue on, then go to ourhenhouse.org, become a flock member and join us to get all those great perks we were talking about. And the reason that the holiday donation season has kicked off is because we always started on your birthday. And so that means you just had a birthday and... I thought it was a really fun day because I shared some of the events with you. What did you think? I loved it. I had a great time. I At our head house, we were launching the end of year. So there was a lot of work uh, between you, me, and Jen that day. And we also 
launched our new website that day. It was so that was also a lot of work and we're still sort of ironing out the kinks, but it looks so great. And then on a personal level, I organized a private tour. Actually, this was your gift to me, which was very sweet. It was really, really cool. I love the Mount Hope Cemetery, which is a very big, beautiful cemetery that I live a half a block from. And we, the tour guide had asked me in advance, what do you want to focus on? And I said, activists and authors would be cool. And I didn't know that he would do it, but he did. He put together a whole tour focused around activists and authors. And there are some very historic uh, movers and shakers, heroes, really, buried there, including Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony. He gave us these incredible stories to contextualize their life as it touched Rochester. I loved Susan B. Anthony's quote, failure is impossible, which she shared at what wound up being her last public talk. And I was like, oh, I should get that tattooed because I'm always looking for a nice tattoo. And and I realized if I got it tattooed, I have to be careful about the placement because like if I get it on my ankle or something and it says failure is impossible and I put on socks, it might just say like failure. So (laughs) I have to to be strategic, but that she was very strategic and Frederick Douglass and all these incredible, incredible people. So I loved it. I had a great time. She did say that at her last speech and she probably knew it was going to be her last or among her last speeches uh, because she knew she wasn't going to make it to suffrage. She truly believed that it would happen. It would just be after her time. I find that both so sad and so inspiring that we, of course we all have to make the world work. Nobody does this anymore. Well, I mean, you guys do, but like out in the world, it's, everything is just so short term. We all should be thinking long term. It's the only way to, to make change. And so, yeah, that was a really inspiring thing that really made me think of what's happening with animals because things do seem to happen so slowly sometimes. You can't think that that it, this is for you. It's like you do your piece and hopefully the people who come after you do their piece and sooner or later we get there. There were also other less, well, I mean, I'm sure that, that Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony are on everybody's tour because they are two of the most famous people in the cemetery. But there were other people, too, who he added because you had mentioned that. And I also found that so moving. This one family, they were white. They were very active in the Underground Railroad. And the Underground Railroad actually ended in Rochester. The stations that were here were people's houses. One of the women um, had a couple of boarding houses. So she was able to house really a lot of people. And then they were also left with the task of getting them to Lake Ontario, which was just, you know, those last few miles where they could get on a boat and head for Canada. And it was very inspiring. I loved hearing about all of these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. So great. And then we had Ethiopian food for dinner, which I have decided is my favorite cuisine now. I think it's shifted. It, it goes through phases. And now I'm in Ethiopian with an incredible vegan cake from Red Fern, which is one of our mainstay vegan places here in Rochester. So it was awesome. You know, afterwards, I was thinking about how I want to approach this new year, my 42. One of the things I thought was I want to start running again. I do run a little here and there, but I used to be more into it. I am, uh, you know, really not in great shape. So I am a little worried about it. So I, I reached out to this running coach and I realized I was like super defensive on the like contact form to her because it said that she was she was into sports nutrition and you know 
I just feel like with athletes and athlete types, they're either like super vegan friendly or super anti-vegan. And I, I, I get like a little defensive sometimes when I'm putting myself out there in a way that's vulnerable. And this, this felt sort of vulnerable to me. Like, oh, can you want to go running? Can I, can you help me? But I don't want her to vegan shame me. <laughs> so I was like, I've been vegan for 17 years and this and that. I think you should look forward to her be, vegan shaming you because you know far more than she does yeah. if she's going to do that. And then, well, I mean, you shouldn't give her your money, but if she's going to do that, you will blow her out of the water. So I wouldn't worry about that. It will be an opportunity. I know. But remember when I used to run in races and I'm, I've always been a very slow runner and I would put on like a vegan shirt or something and you'd be like, are you sure you want to wear that on the race? Because, because I feel like, you, you why, be would like I, why would I have said such a thing? Because I want to wear that. Because I'm slow. I'm really. I'm, <laughs> oh, I was being very mean, wasn't I? A little bit, a little bit. But I, it does. It is true, though. Like if I'm going to be running, I'm really not in great shape, and I feel like I have to get in really good shape before I hire a running coach. You're delving into serious neurosis here. Okay, like, just lighten up. Okay, lighten up. Go on your runs. Wear your shirt. <laughs> Eat your vegetables. You'll be fine. Before we get to Dr. Crystal Heath, who I'm now going to just refer to as Dr. Crystal Heath, (laughs) who's, who's, as we mentioned, a veterinarian, there was something in the news this week that touched on similar themes. And so I thought we could chat about it briefly. Well, this is a New York State story, though I hope it's, I don't actually know how widespread these laws are. New York State got two new laws recently, I guess this past week. One bans homeowners insurance companies from charging higher premiums based on breed, which is amazing because so many of them do. And the other mandates veterinarians to report suspected cases of animal abuse, which seems so obvious, but, you know, has not been the law. The thing that really struck me about this story is that, you know, these are nice progressive laws being passed. When I was really active with the New York City Bar Association's Animal Law Committee. These were subjects that we talked about then, and this was years ago, and they seemed impossible. Uh, You know, just getting anybody to even take you seriously, getting the Bar Association to sign on to supporting them, it was a really, really big lift. I was shocked when I read that, that, you know, these have now been passed, they're now the law. It just made me made me think that when we're working on, it's kind of the same subject we were just talking about. Like we're not in this for ourselves. We like Susan B. Anthony, she died before she saw uh, suffrage. Like I'm not talking about you're all going to die, but (laughs) the the topics you're working on, you work on them in the idea that a lot of these are long-term projects and it's going to take a long time to pass them. I mean, this always makes me think too, all right, here's the dark side that the planet is warming. Things are bad. There's a lot of crises. We may not have that much time to spend on passing things that are truly wonderful, but you know, we're, we really need to change the world in very dramatic ways. So that's the, that's the dark side into Marianne's life. But on the bright side, yeah, like this is this really inspired me. It really did because I can just remember these being pipe dreams, and now they're the law. It does show that it's not fast enough, but we do make progress. Yeah, we when we were chatting about whether to put this on the list today, you were like, yeah, I could see your darkness was shining through, which I guess doesn't make so sense. So to speak. Right. But you were like, I don't know. I mean, it just, okay, seems su- like such an obvious thing. Well, if you're new to the podcast, yeah, 
there's a dark person. That's <laughs> me. If you if you're a regular listener, well, you know me. Uh, you know what can I say? Mm. Well, I live yeah, in darkness. That, you know that does concern me sometimes. I mean, maybe this isn't the right time and place, but it's funny because sometimes people will, who listen to the podcast will, you know reach out to me and be like, I love your optimism. I'm like, I'm optimistic. Really? I didn't know that. And they're like, well, you know, next to Marianne. At least I'm serving a purpose here. <laughs> I think it's also because I, I'm such a fix it person. Like it's an, speaking of neuroses, that's one of my neuroses. I'm like, okay, things are awry. I have to fix it. I have to fix it. And so like, if you're upset, I'm like, oh, I can't do anything because Mary, I have to fix it. Marianne's upset. She's feeling dark. I got to like lighten things up. Uh, yeah, I do think that, you know, like I can be, I can be light about things in the sense that, you know, being funny and whatever, but yeah, I, I see the truth. It's bad folks. <laughs> well, but there's also hope. I mean, like, let's just, let's just go to, to this place before we have Dr. Crystal Heath on because we can opt into hope. I mean, that is a strategy. It's something we can choose to do. It doesn't mean it's going to naturally happen. Do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm the one who invented that that phrase, hope is a strategy, by which we don't mean that all you have to do is hope and that will change things. What we do mean is that you may not feel hope. You may not like naturally be a optimistic, hopeful kind of person, but you can kind of wear it. That will both help you be a better activist and it can also help yourself. Yeah. Like get through things. You can just decide, I'm, I'm going to think this is going to work and this is going to be successful. And, and I have real hope for that and hope, you know, that doesn't mean I'm pretending or, or not being realistic. It just means that it's something you can kind of put on. Yes. Wear it for the day, allow it to help you be a better activist. Well, and part of that is of course, also allowing it in so that we can, find a sunnier disposition sometimes, but that, I don't mean that dismissively. There is a such thing as to toxic positivity and I, I don't want to be that person. I think that things are really bad and that it is realistic and reasonable to be very angry and very sad about all of it. How do we keep on keeping on? I think, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a mix of trying to do good things for the world while also recognizing that to some extent, we don't have control over it, even though that should never stop us from acting anyway. As Susan B. Anthony says, failure is impossible. But part of that means that we have to really take care of our own, our own homes, our own light, our own lanes. You know, not to get too specific here, but <laughs> as you know, I'm net zeroing my house. Literally, as we speak, they're bringing solar panels to the roof. We had the geothermal done. I've talked about this before. There are other things that we've done too. I don't want to become redundant with myself, but it's a little upsetting because it, this is not yet replicable. Like it is a little bit, but there sh it should be obvious that all new construction should be solar and eco-friendly. And the fact that I see places popping up without it is like, it, it can be infuriating and it's not yet accessible for like everyone to be able to pay for geothermal, even though I have like a 30 year, you know, financial plan with it. It's still, it's not. And so I start to think, well, like, well, then why am I doing it? If, if this is something that I can do that other people can't, but that, that kind of points to the fact that like, I want to connect this to something bigger. I want to use my experience to make it easier for, for other people and make it something that we can also help subsidize with lower income communities that they can have access to net zeroing, things like that. 
Yeah, well, it's kind of the, it's kind of similar to to when people ask us why are you vegan because it only affects like you know so few animals. It doesn't you know you don't even know whether it affects any given the huge supply chains. But of course, like you know, I think people are starting to recognize, and this applies to what you're doing with your home as well, that individual action and and social and political action go together. They feed off of each other. So I think there's a very good reason to do it yourself to the extent you can afford it. But that also puts you in a position to advocate for it, for the ability of other people to do it. All right. Well, we could certainly talk about this forever, but let's let's move on because I'm excited about this interview. Speaking of hope, this is something that gives me hope. Dr. Crystal Heath is a shelter veterinarian for several shelters and nonprofits throughout Northern California. She has worked on the fur ban campaign and the campaign to get the city of Berkeley to set a goal of shifting its food purchases to 100% plant-based. She's on the founding committee of veterinarians against ventilation shutdown and founder of Our Honor, an organization committed to supporting animal professionals who want to speak their conscience, work to create more ethical systems, and foster connections between like-minded professionals to create real systemic changes. Her practice, known as Vet Harmony, is committed to providing access to care and public education. Dr. Crystal Heath, also works on the Green Pill Podcast. And we'll be joining Marianne right after this. Have you heard the news? Afro-Vegan Society is excited to announce that we're back for the second year with the National Afro-Vegan Virtual Conference. Join us on Saturday, November 13th for our free virtual summit featuring live panels, interviews, and cooking demos exploring how we can create a more just and sustainable future for ourselves, our communities, and our world through compassionate vegan living. You won't want to miss out on the chance to learn from respected Black vegan experts, including Dr. Milton Mills, author Tracy McWhorter, filmmaker John Lewis, the badass vegan, Chef Joya, and more. Plus, we'll be kicking it all off with a virtual vegan happy hour on Friday, November 12th. So don't wait. Register for free today at afroveganSociety.org forward slash events. That's afroveganSociety.org forward slash events. See you there. Welcome to our hen house, Crystal. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. I love our hen house. I'm so happy to be on. <laughs> oh, that's so nice to hear. And I love the idea that there is a actual veterinarian out there who is a vegan animal rights activist, because I, th- I think every listener to this podcast like wants to find that vet so much. And it is so inexplicably hard. So we're going to talk about why it's so hard and, and what is happening to change that. Mm-hmm. And it's not even easy to find a vet who's vegan. I mean, they all eat animals, but even if you find one who's vegan, they're really not usually an activist. And and but first, before we get into all of that, can you just tell us your story? Tell us about how you arrived at being this uh, unicorn, this uh, <laughs> vegan animal rights activist veterinarian. Yeah, I mean, there are actually a lot of us. Unfortunately, I'm probably the most outspoken about it, but I'm trying to empower others to be outspoken too. But I basically I grew up in a rural area of the East Bay, San Francisco Bay area. We had kind of a little farm with a bunch of animals, goats, chickens, horses. I grew up in a neighborhood where 4-H was a huge part of our neighborhood and the social experience of kids growing up. Everybody had like a little farm of like 
five to 10 acres. And if for people who don't know what 4-H is, it's actually an organization that's administered by the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, which is a, a part of the United States Department of Agriculture. And it is a federal governmental program that's administered through the land-grant university system. It teaches kids a variety of different skills, but one of the most notorious things it's known for is the fact that kids raise animals, sheep, pigs, cattle, and they they raise them and then sell them at the county fairs for a market. And Zoe Rosenberg is somebody who's raised a lot of attention about this. Her mom is a former 4-H'er and a veterinarian as well. She's a great animal rights activist as well. And they rescue animals from 4-H kids for their sanctuary. So yeah, I grew up in 4-H. I had goats, dairy goats, and I never actually did one of those projects where we had to sell our goats to slaughter or anything. I kind of got close to that point because I we got baby goats. I hand-fed my baby goats and I milked the neighbor's goats. Like that was part of my thing. I was huge into the goat project. I love goats so much. But then it got to the next year after I showed my baby goats the first year where we would have to breed our goats. And then I was told if we had boy goats that they would have to be sold to slaughter. And I was like, I am not doing that. And, you know, I talked about it with my family and I, my family is very vegan friendly, but I first kind of went vegan when I was like 10 years old. And, but I went to a birthday party where they were having hot dogs and my parents And I told them, these people at the birthday party, like, I don't eat animals. So they made me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And my parents were like, you will eat whatever, you know, these people give you. That's rude to like ask for something different. Now, both my parents are vegans. So, you know, they've changed. And I didn't like, I wasn't vegan at the age of 10. Like I went through this kind of process of going back and forth and you know, I really wasn't vegan until probably, or strictly vegan until a few years ago, once I got involved in a community where I knew more vegans and activists. But back to like the whole 4-H thing, I was vice president of my 4-H club. And that was like a really huge part of my childhood experience growing up. And it was really hard to be like, no, I'm not going to continue with the goat project because I can't imagine selling my baby goats to slaughter. So I step down from the goat project kind of it's tough because you lose those friendships but I understand like the social pressure that exists to kind of normalize these this exploitation of animals to kind of like maintain your social status and your friendships so I, I have a lot of empathy for people that way I think we see that not just in like something as serious like as a club as a group of of children like in 4-h but just the whole world is a, it's social pressure to to not pay attention to animals. So yeah, it's not surprising. That's such an interesting background. It's sort of a combination, like like that you grew up raising animals, but not really selling them to slaughter. And but then you went to vet school. I mean, understandably, you really must have loved animals. You went to vet school, but you still managed to get through vet school without. I assume since you said you didn't become like a a real vegan, like you know a hundred percent vegan, you toyed with it. The whole, the whole way through. But I want to talk to you about vet school, both your own experiences, but also about the the broader issues, because people often do expect vets to be animal rights activists, or, or at least on that spectrum of, you know, like people who care about animals, it, it makes sense. But 
though you say it's not that uncommon, I, you know, I think most of us have found it hard to find uh, vets who have that point of view. So tell us, how does the vet school experience contribute to the fact that people like you who are on that, who were headed in that direction, kind of don't take it and and sometimes becomes even even more of a, uh, not just a tra- stopping a trajectory towards being an animal rights activist, but really becoming not very interested in animal care at all. That school seems to do that. It's really hard. I mean, I t- tell this story about one of my friends who um, she applied to the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. She was a vegan, but her friend, you know, she understood, I understood when I applied to vet school, you have to be really careful about saying you're vegan or vegetarian or anything like that, because on every admissions committee, there is somebody who is a livestock producer or somebody who works in animal experimentation. And you have to appeal to what their desires are. And they want to protect their industry. They want to accept people into vet school who are going to defend their industry so that they can continue to thrive. If they have a bunch of vegan animal rights activists, they're their industry is going to crumble once that's brought to the public's attention. And so they are very careful to limit anybody who's a vegan or an animal rights activist. And there's a lot of hostility towards vegans and animal rights activists in veterinary school. So I tell this story about this one vegan who, you know, she knew, understood the importance of appeasing the admissions committee, but her friend did not understand that. And her friend thought that he was helping her and told one of the members of the admissions committee, you know, she loves animals so much, she's vegan. So you really should let her in. And this guy who was on the admissions committee was a pork producer. And he said, she will get in to vet school over my dead body. And that's the kind of blatant gatekeeping that exists. But unfortunately, like there's also just kind of more subtle effects. I know you know, vegans and animal rights activists were very compassionate, empathetic people. We don't want to see animals hurt. We don't want to see animal suffering. We don't want to euthanize animals like that. Doing that to an animal seems a really hard decision. We don't want to, that to be part of our day-to-day lives. So a lot of, there's just a lot of people who are really empathetic would be great for the profession, but self-select against entering the profession. I can totally see that. I actually know somebody who's a vet tech mm-hmm. who quit being a vet tech just because she couldn't handle it. I mean, and she wasn't working in the, in, you know, like in it was just like the the casual euthanasia and, and things like that. It was just not that it happened all the time, but so I can see that. It's also, a, there's also a funding issue, right? I mean, it's not just, I mean, the reason these people are on the boards, I assume, is because there's money involved. Yeah. I mean, one example is that the Iowa State Pork Producers Association gave over $1 million to the Iowa State Veterinary School. And these associations give a lot of money to these vet schools and have an interest in uh, making sure that the right things are taught and the right questions are asked in science. And these questions are often for the benefit of producers. And it's these questions like, how can we select for animals that will raise more meat? How can we kill animals in a way that will preserve meat quality? You know, these aren't, these are very human-centered capitalist type of questions that are being asked. And these are like these hierarchies that are being perpetuated in 
veterinary medicine. And veterinary medicine is historically a very white male profession. Now, since the 80s, 90s, it has switched to being more women. But unfortunately, women, we are also subject to the patriarchy and we are subject to norms of feminism, which those norms are often to be very small and be very quiet and just kind of go along. And there's this culture that exists in veterinary medicine. We are very perfectionistic people. We have often derived our self-worth from achievement. And once we get into vet school, there's just this sort of idea that's pervasive among everybody in vet school of imposter syndrome, this feeling that you're not good enough, you'll, you're not smart enough, and you don't belong here. And somehow you just managed to get in and fly under the radar. There's a huge amount of respect that these students have for their professors. And then when their professors are saying things and doing things and asking them to do things, they want to just kind of put their head down and go along with it. It's not even just that, is it? it I mean, I don't know whether this still goes on or how much this still goes on, but I've always understood that in vet school, you actually have to participate in killing healthy animals because of the, the way that you practice surgery. Is that is that still a big thing? Yes, unfortunately. And it's kind of gone on the underground. It used to be a couple of years ago, the HSVMA had this list of schools that did still do ter- what's known as terminal surgeries, where students take healthy animals, they do one or more surgeries on them, and then are forced to euthanize them afterwards. Many students have stood up against this and have changed their schools. And on my website, Our Honor, we list those stories of those students and how they have changed systems. But still to this day, there are schools that are still doing this. And I just received uh, messages and talked to some students at one school. I'm not going to name names yet because there's still conversations being had, but they were blindsided by the fact that they had to do this as part of their curriculum. One of the students even asked uh, before accepting admittance into the school, if they would be forced to do terminal surgeries and they were told no. And I had um, a bunch of pre-vet students reach out to this school and ask them to see what they were telling the public about their policy on terminal surgeries. They reached many different gatekeepers in the school and they were all told emphatically that no, that school did not do terminal surgeries. I even called, gave them my name, you know, said who I was and what organization I was with. And I'm like, do you guys do terminal surgeries here. I was transferred to three different people who all told me emphatically, no, they did not. But I know for a fact, those students are telling me they are asked to do a terminal surgery. And luckily, this group of students was given an alternative as conscientious objectors, but this alternative is not sufficient. They are given a cadaver to work on, to do surgeries on, which is not the same as doing a surgery on a living being who bleeds, who moves, And the most important part of surgery is managing their pain and comfort after surgery, talking to their caretaker about how to care for them, monitoring for signs of problems afterwards. And we shouldn't be decoupling the physical act of doing surgery with the patient care part, because that leads to all sorts of problems. If you're just, you know, teaching surgery as this physical act and not taking into account that you're performing surgery on a living being. I was just going to ask you that question, which I think you were going to get to that. What's the alternative? I mean, like 
do you do surgeries on healthy animals, but then let the animal recover? Like, well, just you just tell me what's the best alternative so that people can learn how to do surgery, but not harm animals. Yeah, I didn't have to kill anyone in my training in veterinary school. What we had at UC Davis was an access to care model. And that is where we had animals come in from shelters who needed spay-neuter that we'd practice spay-neuter on. We also had a community surgery program where clients paid $500 and we did a variety of different surgeries on these animals. And this was all under the guidance of a skilled surgeon, kind of like what you would expect somebody to do in human medical school. Sadly, though, in human medical school, they some, many still do practice surgery on pigs. I've talked to many human doctors who are traumatized by this experience because they too feel like they should, they take very seriously that their goal should be to heal and do no harm. And that includes do no harm on these pigs who are, they're practicing surgery on. So, so yeah, there is this access to care model that is very successful. Right now, there's a huge need for veterinary services. Many people can't get into the vet. It's very expensive. So this access to care model solves a lot of problems. And the students get the full experience of what it's like to do surgery, which is meet the patient beforehand, talk to their caregivers, do the surgery, manage their pain afterwards, and manage any complications that may arise and educate their caregivers on proper care. And just seeing the results of the success of their surgery, their patient going from having a problem like a tumor or having an orthopedic issue and then recovering and being healthy afterwards. That is gives a huge sense of pride and motivation to the students. When their first surgical experience is the fact that they have to kill their patient afterwards, that is very traumatizing and can lead to a lot of negative feelings about doing surgery from then on out. And they can't pinpoint why. There's, there's this epidemic of veterinarians who are scared of surgery and doing surgery. And I wonder how much of that is this, this trauma from having to kill your first patient. Like, it's crazy to think that this happens, but it's particularly crazy when there's obviously such a perfectly great solution that there are all these patients out there that need surgery, that will die without it. And this is their only option because their caretakers don't have that much money. Like, this is crazy. But, you know, I could go on and on about everything that's wrong with vet school. And I'm sure you could do, (laughs) because I'm sure there's a lot more. But, I, you know, we want to get to other things, too, because it's not like the pressure ends at vet school. You have pointed to a lot of examples of this hostility within the profession itself, past school, that hostility towards any kind of progressive change for animals and and, and the big vet organizations. And I have heard this in the past from so many, um, or at least from a few vets who, they just tend to back off from any kind of political action within the profession because they don't, you know, they just feel like it's controlled by these retrograde forces. You have not done that. But can you tell us a bit about the kind of attitudes there are within the profession towards, say, progressive legislation for animals or uh, or any other kind of progress for animals and why it's such a problem? Yeah. I mean, to start off with, like we are taught in veterinary school that animal we have this class on animal welfare versus animal rights and that animal rights activists are a danger to our profession. We're taught that animal law is a danger to our profession, that it will result in poor treatment of animals. It will result in our us having high rates of malpractice insurance because 
once animals are now family members, it'll just be like human doctors where they're forced to pay these these large fees for like loss of companionship if if their animal were to die at the hands of a veterinarian. And um and some of the things that they're taught are just outright falsehoods. One of the things a couple days ago a student brought to my attention was in her animal welfare versus animal rights class, she was taught that animal rights activists are against spay neuter. And I was like, this isn't, I mean, I, I could understand like animals can't consent. So, but from what I understand, like from everybody I've talked to, everybody's pretty much in favor of spay neuter because it decreases suffering and because it's for the best interest of the animal. We can have some debates on that in the future. So I did a study of animal rights activists and found that 96.4% supported cat trap neuter return programs and 96.4% of those surveyed who are animal rights activists opposed any legislation that would prohibit a veterinarian from spaying and neutering. And yet the industry attacks these new laws that are coming out as saying that this will lead to it being illegal for veterinarians to practice spay and neuter and things like that, and which is really disingenuous and isn't not actually what is intended at all. I recently um, went through an opposition email that was written about HR 61, which is a California resolution that was going to be passed, that was introduced. And in it, they say that this resolution could lead to and this, basically, this resolution was a thing that said that all of the assembly members are have a position of being against non-therapeutic surgeries in animals. And the CVMA, the California Veterinary Association, was against this legislation, saying that it would mean that veterinarians couldn't perform therapeutic ear lifts in breeds that are predisposed to otitis. And I asked my colleagues, has anybody ever heard of this as a thing? Like, is anybody doing therapeutic ear lifts to prevent otitis? It's not a thing. They're like flat out lying about this like procedure. I posted in many veterinary message boards and things, and it's just not a thing. They're, they're just flat out lying. The legislation was pointed toward things like cosmetic surgeries for dog, like ear cropping and tail docking, that sort of thing. Is that what the legislation was supposed to be targeted at? Exactly. Yeah. Just kind of. And this is very important to the veterinary profession because when somebody calls and says, hey, do you guys do ear cropping or tail docking or declawing? And a, off, a receptionist says, no, we don't do that here at our practice. They're just going to hang up the phone and call another practice until they find a veterinarian who does it. Until it's outlawed, th that's going to keep happening. It's not really in the veterinarian's hands to make sure that people don't do it as long as it remains legal. And a great example of this is uh, the declaw bans. Now, many municipalities and um, countries around the world have banned declawing. And the CVMA still has this position that it's a declaw ban would result in more cats being relinquished to shelters. Just recently, my colleague did a study in uh, British Columbia that asked the, the question, since this declaw ban has taken effect here in our provenance, has that resulted in an increase in relinquishment? And no, it has not. So their belief that it's going to result in an increase in relinquishment to shelters is just flat out wrong. Most of the cats who we see in shelters who are declawed 
are there because they have developed behavioral issues from declawing, such as urinating outside the litter box and biting and things like that. Nobody's relinquishing cats to the shelter because of furniture trauma and things like that. I mean, you can certainly see that there's money in in these surgeries, and that's why they wouldn't want to. But the issues that you're involved in go much bigger than that as well because of the whole influence of the um, animal agriculture industry on the veterinary profession. And one of the issues, of course, that came up in the past year or two, which you became involved in, which really ended up being a huge, huge, well, at least in my world, a huge cause celeb, like was what happens to particularly pigs in ventilation shutdown when, you know, and this became famous. I don't know whether it happens all the time, probably not that often because they don't often want to get rid of their animals. But of course it became, I think most of our listeners probably know basically what happened during COVID uh, when there were quote unquote too many pigs. But can you just go over it a little and and gently so everybody knows what we're talking about. And then talk a little bit about the, the movement against it. Yeah. Um, so ventilation shutdown is basically where producers felt that they had to depopulate their animals because of the closure of the slaughterhouses when every all the workers got sick from COVID because they weren't protected. And that lo- led to a slowing of the slaughter lines. And then it led to a disruption of the whole supply chain. So as these pigs grew larger, they were running out of space and they already had kept them in such tight quarters, increased stocking densities to start with. So they really couldn't manage uh, to take care of these pigs once they grew even larger. And they had no place to go, they thought. So they decided to kill them in this method known as ventilation shutdown where they close up the barns, pump in steam and hundreds of thousands of pigs were killed this way. This was the only reason this was brought to the attention of the public and the veterinary community was because activists planted cameras and filmed this taking place. We would have never known this was going on. And even before the activist footage was released, I had gotten inklings that this might be a thing. And I asked the questions to the veterinary community and they're like, this is animal rights propaganda. This isn't actually going on. And then the footage was released and the report from The Intercept came out and veterinarians started talking about it and were horrified by what was going on. And so I, with a bunch of other people, drafted this letter. We, I, we were so worried about the activists. They were facing felony charges for this. And they, we believed that they were heroes. They did the right thing. These ag-gag laws are unconstitutional and unjust. And so we, we wanted to support them in their upcoming trials. We wrote this letter supporting the activists and condemning ventilation shutdown, asking the ABMA to condemn ventilation shutdown. Hundreds of veterinarians signed on to this. Then some other people were like, well, we should have a broader plan in place. So we created this website, Veterinarians Against Ventilation Shutdown. So far, over 3,500 veterinary professionals have signed on. 1,500 of these are veterinarians. But in response to this, and I have called the AVMA, I've emailed them, my delegate, nobody is returning my calls or emails. They did send me a nice, beautiful certificate thanking me for being a member for 10 years and thanking me for my service, <laughs> but, <laughs> which I probably paid close to $4,000 in membership fees over those 10 years as a member, but uh, they have not bothered to re- return my calls or emails. They have 
then released a variety of responses. And then they just released this special report in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, basically outlining exactly the decision process for doing ventilation shutdown, their reasonings, and it's kind of a giant like defense for ventilation shutdown. And this report is extremely flawed in the way that it's presented. It says, so in the depopulation guidelines of the AVMA, the goal is for 95% of the animals to have passed away within an hour. Like That's viewed as acceptable. It's definitely not humane, but Iowa Select Farms basically was able to go to the media and say, we were using AVMA-approved methods for depopulation. And then they conflated it with, it's humane. They told the police, they told their employees, we're using humane AVMA-approved methods. This is far from humane. But in this report, they basically say like, yeah, 95% of the pigs died within an hour. The problem is they don't start the clock until it reaches 130 degrees inside of the barn. And the length of time actually it took for these animals to pass away or just go to silent, we don't know for sure. There's no way to for you to really check whether these animals are still alive when you have thousands and thousands. But the length of time was 90.4 minutes to in nursery pigs and 110.3 minutes in those finishing pigs with one case lasting over two and a half hours. And despite these authors saying that there's no conflicts of interest, these are authors who have a history of working with the swine industry, the pork industry. These are people who work for Merck, Zoetis, who have an interest in protecting Iowa Select Farms and these other places. This report, we don't know if it was done at Iowa Select Farms. It might have been done at a different farm, but we do know the activist footage came from Iowa Select Farms. But they these industries, Zoetis, Merck, have an interest in defending these farms because they sell a great deal of products. They're great big customers, giant customers of them. So they have an interest in in defending them. And they say money wasn't a factor in their decision. And they calculated the cost of ventilation shutdown as $10 million. But the numbers that they come up with are quite they just kind of throw out, it costs $900,000 and then it costs $30 a head for rendering, which is a very high amount. Like if anything, the cost would be like eight to $10 a head. If it were to cost anything, I don't know. I, I'd imagine these farms also are, have a close relationship with renderers as many animals die on their farms. I would think that they'd have their own kind of side branch of rendering facility that is able to profit from the body parts of these animals. And then they also give the amount of $60 a head for composting, which composting should be cheaper than rendering. So that doesn't make any sense. So they're they're messing with the numbers, but they're also getting money from our taxes, right? To, yeah. To do this in the future. Recently, the deadline was extended for the producers to get taxpayer funding. And I kind of did a quick calculation of this farm that's listed in the special report, what kind of taxpayer money they would get. In my estimate, you know, somebody can look at my my spreadsheet and see if I make any inaccuracies here, but they would have made around $23 million in taxpayer subsidies from depopulating these pigs. If anybody who's listening from the industry questions this, like, please look at my spreadsheet. 
offer some criticisms, but I feel like my number I came up with is pretty accurate. Something around 20. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. (laughs) If it was one tenth of that, it would be outrageous. So do you think that ventilation shutdown might be something of a turning point, encouraging vets, you know, because there's so many vets who, who they don't have anything to do with the animal agriculture industry, that yet they belong to these organizations. And, and I guess there's a sense that you have to belong to the organizations. And they just kind of like their, their names are being put on it almost because, because they're part of this profession. Do you think this might be something of a turning point and encouraging those kind of vets, like the one, the kinds that we mostly know to get involved to maybe think a little bit more seriously about what's happening to animals to kind of buck the power structure within veterinary medicine. Is it, do you have hope that this is, this is the beginning of something? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are disgusted. The more and more you shine a light on these issues, the more and more people are talking about it and realizing how this industry is shrouded in secrecy and how we're, our profession is being used to lend legitimacy to these absolute atrocities and people aren't going to have it anymore. And we're going to realize animal agriculture is completely unsustainable. They're getting so much of our taxpayer money. That money should be going to transition towards a more sustainable, compassionate food system. Everybody I know who's like really cares about these issues, unfortunately, has left the AVMA and and left these organizations. I am going to stick with it because I like to be like, I'm a member. I want to talk to you guys. You guys aren't talking to me. And I, I would encourage other people to continue to join. But we also have to start our own organization. We have to get organized and start talking about these issues and talking to legislators directly. And that's, that's what I hope to do. Um, this is why I founded our honor. People are reaching out to me saying like, yeah, I'm disgusted by what's going on. How, what can we do to help and change these systems? And I just bring it back to like, we have to look at what has been successful in the veterinary medicine in the past. And we can look at the shelter industry, how we used to kill 13 million dogs and cats in our shelters. And because of veterinarians working together with activists and starting that dialogue, that number is now down to less than a million. And we can do the same thing for animal agriculture, for animal experimentation. We have to work with these livestock veterinarians, with these veterinarians who work in lab animal medicine. You know, I'm sure back in the day, people looked at shelter veterinarians and were like, who are these monsters euthanizing all these dogs in the shelters? And that's kind of the way that we look at livestock and animal, lab animal veterinarians. But we really have to view them as part of the future. And how can we bridge those connections? How can we open a dialogue with them to help them envision a world where, I mean, we became veterinarians to help animals. So certainly we don't want to have more animals in this system. We want to eventually scale back to fewer, fewer animals. And we have to get them to see that there is a future. I'm sure right now their identity is in like they are feeding humanity and they're very defensive about anybody who attacks this ingrained identity that they have. These attacks can lead to shame and then they lead to a lot of backlash against people like animal rights activists. But somehow we have to build that connection. The AVMA should be meeting with animal rights groups because we are key stakeholders here in helping them create a future for animals where fewer animals are hurt. 
And that's what the AVMA's goal should be. What will the animal ag industry look like 40 years from now? What will the lab animal industry look like 40 years from now? I'm sure we all want to envision a future where there's definitely fewer animals in these systems, if not maybe even no animals in these systems. And with new technology like that, that is definitely a possibility. So let's start talking with each other and seeing how we can make that a reality. I love your attitude towards this. And it, I mean, it seems like there's just so much money involved, but but you are right that veter- veterinarians are such a crucial part of the system because, I mean, that story you told about how they went to the AVMA and the AVMA kind of signed off on the process and then they were touting it as humane, like even though, like they are constantly hiding behind veterinarians and that has to end, it really does. I'm kind of wondering whether, you know, the science is growing so dramatically about animal cognition and, and veterinarians are scientists. Is that having any influence, at least on the younger part of the profession, but maybe on all people that this just like the stuff they have said in the pit, it just we know it's not true anymore about animal, what animals experience. Is that is that talked about at all? Yeah, I mean, there's this weird dichotomy, like we we value pain so much. We consider animal pain and suffering so much. And even September was Animal Pain Awareness Month. But at the same time, they released this article defending ventilation shutdown, saying, this one vet says, we have African swine fever in the Dominican Republic. There's avian influenza. There are going to be times when this is needed, like it or not. But at the same time, we're acknowledging animal pain. So of course, like you would think the future is we should have, we're going to broaden our circle of compassion. We have dogs and cats in that circle. We're going to expand it to other species. This is the way the wind is blowing. We're hoping with activist efforts, that's leading to conversation in boardrooms across the country in these animal ag industries, you know, where they're saying, you know, our future is we should start investing our money towards plant-based alternatives. Let's not put these funds into these slaughterhouses, into these CAFOs. But at the same time, our government is propping up and giving them incentives and reducing the risk on these the construction of new slaughterhouses and CAFOs. So it's like they're not letting normal market forces take effect. You know, so that's the struggle. We have to stop these this government subsidization of animal agriculture and cruelty. I kept that that quote because I saw it in your materials in my head about that vet who said, well, we're, you know, we're going to have swine flu. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. So we're going to have to use ventilation shutdown. It's like the mindset is animal agriculture is a given. That's reality. Like there's just no way around it. So whatever we have to do, no matter how awful it is, we have to do it. And that, that's just a mindset that like it's not true anymore. It's just animal agriculture is not a given. So you have to deal with the, I mean, if we're going to have swine flu and therefore we're going to use ventilation shutdown for them, and then we're going to have something else. And we're going to like start thinking about whether this is okay, but it's never like that. It's just, it's a given. We have to keep animal agriculture going. So if that's what's going to happen, then this is what we're going to have to do. I love that finally, you know, you have formed this organization and you have so many people speaking out. Before I let you go, can you just tell people a little bit about where they can find you, how they can support you? Go to ourhonor.org. We post some blog posts there about the issues. You can get connected 
For veterinarians, we have chat groups, we have regular support circles, we meet over Zoom, we talk about these issues. I speak in front of veterinary clubs and pre-veterinary clubs uh, about these issues. We have to start getting the conversation going and planning on talking with these veterinary medical associations about envisioning the future with animals that doesn't rely on exploitation. That future exists. And we will do some interesting uh, FOIA requests too that always lead to some interesting information. So yeah, please get involved, help us write letters. And then the trial of those who uncovered ventilation shutdown is scheduled for December 1st. So many people are coming to Iowa to give some support to them. And I work on the Green Pill podcast. Um, We have a lot of great guests coming up. I am behind the scenes. I am not on on the mic there, but um, it's it's a great podcast and really talks about the science behind social change. And I believe we can use a lot of those methods for addressing animal agriculture in the veterinary community. And also just donate to Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary is one of the best sanctuaries in the country. And, uh, and yeah, my twin sister actually has a book coming out too, which I hope uh, you can all read. Her name is Carly Heath and it's an animal rights themed young adult novel uh, called The Reckless Kind. So please check it out. It is awesome. I love young adult novels, especially (laughs) about animal rights. You got a lot going on. Is it possible for people who are advocating in one realm or another, whether it's for legislation or against a particular type of exploitation or whatever, would you have connections to veterinarians who would be able to provide some expert advice Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have a a big network and we can definitely put people in the right direction for sure. Oh, that would be great. I'm sure that so many people are in need of that. Well, this is really amazing. I love what you're doing. You're also practicing veterinary medicine, I know, on the side. Well, not on the side, but (laughs) (laughs) with all the other things you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) I am definitely not a full-time activist. I am a practicing veterinarian, (laughs) shelter veterinarian, and I'm starting my own veterinary practice. So. Where Where is that just for people who happen to be in that area? I'm in Berkeley, California. So you can check out my, we have an access to care model of veterinary clinic uh, called Vet Harmony. And we do pop-up veterinary clinics within the community because it's so hard to get into a vet right now. So we kind of go to where the demand is and try to serve the people in their communities. Great idea. You're doing so much and it's so exciting. I love talking to a vet who is on the right side of history. So thanks so much for doing this today, Crystal. It's been great. Thank you for having me on. This is awesome. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's rising. Dairy Checkoff unveils undeniably dairy campaign evolution to reach Gen Z. This seems like the dopiest idea I've ever heard of, but you know, maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. I'm no PR specialist. 
So the dairy checkoff, you know, which collects money to do adver- to advertise dairy, is launching a new wave of the undeniably dairy campaign to create deeper connections between Gen Z and dairy and give them new reasons to choose it over other products. I do think this is a pretty basic, <laughs> basic revelation of rising anxieties. The undeniably dairy campaign is their overall campaign. I don't even understand the name of that. Like, yeah, it is undeniably dairy. Like, I even I'm not denying it's dairy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What does that even mean? All right. So now they're, they're doing a subsection of that campaign for Gen Z. And it's called, just wait for this, Reset Yourself with Dairy. What? What? But wait till you hear why. Uh, you know, it's kind of hidden in this article, but there is a real reason here that they're using this. And they call it a youth-centric evolution of the Chekhov's consumer campaign And it will use a variety of media channels and marketing strategies. They are spending a lot of money and they're going to like all of the, you know, all the main social media stuff, including gaming, social media influencers and digital content to engage with Gen Z to grow sales and trust of dairy. And this uh, article is from Ag Info and it is it, it is by Russell Nemitz. Apparently, they're really worried about losing the next generation. They want it to show up in all the right places. They're spending a lot of money. And they want to reassert dairy's place in young people's lives. Reassert. See, you know, you get the feeling these they feel like kids were eat, drinking milk when they were little and now they're not anymore. In a way that is in the social media and entertainment spaces they love and speaks their language. Okay. Uh, so the reason it's reset yourself with dairy. This is a quote from Marilyn Hershey, who's a Pennsylvania dairy farmer. Reset yourself with dairy will show Gen Z all that dairy can offer and that they can feel good about their choice. Apparently, they now feel bad about that choice. It'll remind them that real milk makes them feel better and offers wellness benefits that can help them get through their day. And they're pushing a number of of different, uh, what they consider to be the wellness benefits of dairy, which, you know, they seem to have have basically made up. I don't know. Probably the most important one, of all of them uh, is what they call calm. They say dairy makes you calm. Like, why would dairy make you calm? My, at, at, at best, it'll probably give you a stomachache, in my opinion, but uh, they think it will make you calm. And the reason that they think this is good and will appeal to kids is because they live such stressful lives. That's kind of sad, isn't it? And they're, so they're creating humorous videos that relate to Gen Z's hectic lives. Uh, and it has been unveiled with the hope of making them seek a reset moment with dairy. Like they're they're thinking kids are getting so upset that they'll kind of take a glass of milk as a as like a anti-anxiety medication. It's just bizarre. Just bizarre. And I don't know, like is are people's lives that hectic right now? People's lives are not great. But hectic, I'm not sure, is the thing that's going on with the pandemic. It's more like they're confined or they have been confined. And uh, I guess they're trying to catch up. I don't know. From Unearthed, this is from, uh, which is from Greenpeace. Leaked documents reveal the fossil fuel and meat producing countries lobbying against climate action. It was, it was published as a prequel to the, um, the summit that's, that's ongoing in Scotland about climate. And it has this charming picture of Bolsonaro of Brazil and Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, laughing with each other. 
And it does talk a lot about, particularly with Saudi Arabia, about oil. But then it also gets into quite extensively the fact that Brazil and Argentina, two of the world's biggest producers of beef and animal feed, have been pressing to delete messages about the climate benefits of promoting plant-based diets and of curbing meat and dairy consumption. So this is like they they got into all of these draft comments like from all over the world, like loads and loads and loads of comments and focused on these countries that make a lot of money from animal agriculture and, uh, you know, are just trying to like they just say things. There's no uh, that there's no evidence. There's no scientific evidence. There's no nothing to support this, which, of course, is nonsense. But, you know, I guess they can just feel that they can just say it and and get away with it and try to get them to take out anything in this report that will suggest that people should curb eating animals. It says here, elsewhere, the documents reveal an escalating dispute over the role of animal agriculture in driving climate change. Government officials from Brazil and Argentina, both countries with influential agribusiness lobbies, no shit, that are among the world's biggest producers of beef and animal feed crops like soya beans, push repeatedly for the IPCC to remove or water down messages in the report about the need to curb meat and dairy consumption to tackle global warming. Charming, right? Argentina presses for uh, a swathe of further deletions, including references to taxes on red meat, even to the International Meatless Monday campaign, which encourages people to go vegetarian one day a week. God forbid such radical concepts on grounds that these are, quote, biased concepts. They just say it's biased, you know, like there's loads of science that um, animal agriculture contributes to uh, global warming, but they don't care. They just say it won't. We don't want to tell people what to eat, IPCC Adaptation Working Group co-chair Hans Otto Portner said when the report was released. But it would indeed be beneficial for both climate and human health if people in many rich countries consumed less meat. Brazil and Argentina are not having this, particularly Brazil under Bolsonaro. They ask for full deletion of sentences such as, diets low in meat and dairy are already prevalent in many countries and cultures and their take-up is increasing from current low levels elsewhere. Like, you're not even allowed to say, like, a fact. <laughs> Plant-based diets can reduce global greenhouse emissions by up to 50% compared to the average emission-intensive Western diet. No, we must get rid of that. You know, well, we'll like, these countries could have a, a major effect. It's pretty depressing. And it's just, like, they just... They just say whatever they want. Oh, all right. From from our friends over at Plant Based News, governments, they're talking about the UK government. Government swiftly deletes document advocating plant based diets amid climate crisis. More of the same, only this is in the UK. And we don't know how this is going to work out, but apparently they released this, uh, the, a government agency released this document. It was called Net Zero Principles for Successful Behavior Change Initiatives. It was commissioned by the Department for Business, and it, it almost immediately was taken down and say, somebody said, oh, no, that was a mistake. But fortunately, the BBC had captured it, so we now know what they thought had to be taken down. And, you know, it's the same kind of deal. Some of the statements from the report that was taken down, food consumption is a largely automatic habit-based behavior strongly driven by cues in our physical, social, and price environment. Evidence shows that altering this choice environment is more effective than prompting or imploring people to adopt sustainable diet choices. Well, that is so, so so well said and so obvious that people will, you know, by and large, eat what's available as long as it's okay. And if they see loads of meat in the supermarket, 
you know, telling them not to buy it is not what you're going to, you want to give them the options and put the options up front. But apparently um, the UK government said, no, let's not say that. Let's revoke that report. The basic gist of the report was that low carbon choices should be made easier for consumers. What a radical concept. Looks like uh, there's a lot of the same thing going on. And the more it becomes a subject of awareness that there is a connection between animal-based diets and, and climate change, and the more that climate change actually starts to rise into the level of regular uh, people in their, in their consciousness, the more we're going to see this kind of bullshit. So be prepared. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising season. We've had an amazing year and we couldn't have done it without you. So we're hoping, hoping, hoping you'll join us once again to ensure another productive year for our hen house. The best part is that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our amazing Barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we are hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year end. This is our main fundraiser of the year, so it's kind of a big deal for us. Huge or modest, every donation counts and will help us reach our goal. Just to reiterate, since I know this is sometimes kind of a lot to wrap your head around, we have an incredible group of Barnyard benefactors who pooled together $20,000, and then we have an added $20,000 from one single anonymous donor. All of that will match your dollar, dollar for dollar. Get that? Your donations are going to be tripled. That means we can raise $60,000, which is the vast majority of our annual budget. We do most of our fundraising for the last two months of the year, and we really need your help. Remember, we're a nonprofit, so it's totally tax deductible. If you're not already part of our flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks too, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, and an invitation to our monthly flock first Friday Zoom meetings. Oh, plus an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one Zoom meeting with me to talk about anything activism related. Also, if you donate $100 or more, I'll also send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. <laughs> I love you. So if you appreciate our hen house, and please know we appreciate you, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the power of change making when it comes to indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. That's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Oh, another really great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, really, or like us on Facebook. You could leave us a review there, too, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us, tell your family about us, tell your enemies about us. 
If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven and Eric Montgomery for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We're going to be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.